Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 166, The Bill of Rights. Last time, we introduced the big three institutions of American government. The House of Representatives, chaotic and busy, dominated by Madison. The Senate, slow and preoccupied with protocol, dominated by Adams. And the Presidency, with Washington trying to strike the right balance between Republican simplicity and the dignity of a head of state. Today, we need to turn our attention to the most pressing matter affecting the young republic. The Bill of Rights. The concern with rights has a long history in English political tradition, and goes back to Magna Carta. During the lockdowns of the COVID-19 pandemic in England, Magna Carta was invoked constantly as a counter to government restrictions in a way that will seem absurd to anyone who did not personally experience it. To tell you the truth, personally experiencing it didn't much reduce the absurdity. This has played a significant role in English history. The Bill of Rights of 1689 being one of the results of the Glorious Revolution, and we've seen it have an impact on the American colonies too. Remember, in the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It was something at the forefront of the minds of those crafting the Constitution. However, at the Convention, a Bill of Rights was brought up only in the final days of the Convention by George Mason, and it was actually voted down. How do we explain this contradiction? It was at the forefront of the minds of everybody, but wasn't included in the Constitution? Well, we'll start with my own introduction to the topic. The West Wing. Season 1, episode 9 of The West Wing is called The Shortlist. In the episode, a Supreme Court justice retires, and President Bartlett is considering whether to nominate Judge Harrison to the bench. It would be a popular choice, but they have a concern over Harrison's opinions on the right to privacy. There's a scene, which I'll go through, where President Bartlett, Sam and Toby are interviewing Harrison in the Oval Office. Judges are bound to interpret the Constitution within the strict parameters of the text itself. The Constitution doesn't provide for a right of privacy. The right doesn't exist. The Third Amendment says soldiers can't be quartered in private homes. The Fifth provides protection against self-incrimination. And the Fourth, against unreasonable searches, to deny the right to privacy lives in those passages. No, I do not deny it. But the fact that the framers enumerated those specific protections is all the more reason to believe that they had no intention of making privacy a de facto right. They just fought a revolution. They had no question of their freedoms. The Bill of Rights was meant to codify the most crucial of those rights, not to limit the others. I do this for a living, Mr. Seaborn. So do I, Your Honor. Peyton, do I have the right to put on an ugly plaid jacket and a loud polka dot tie and walk down Main Street? Yes. And where in the Constitution is that right guaranteed? First Amendment, freedom of expression. What about the use of cream in my coffee? Surely there can be no free speech argument to be made there. No. So you would have no objection to the state of New Hampshire passing a law banning the use of cream in coffee? 
I would have strong objection, Mr. President, as I like cream as well, but I would have no constitutional basis to strike down the law when you brought your case to the Supreme Court. As I lose the votes of coffee drinkers everywhere. In 1987, there was a sizable block of delegates who were initially opposed to the Bill of Rights. This is what a member of the Georgia delegation had to say by way of opposition. If we list a set of rights, some fools in the future are going to claim that people are entitled only to those rights enumerated and no others. So the framers knew. Were you just calling me a fool, Mr. Seaborn? I wasn't calling you a fool, sir. The brand new state of Georgia was. Gentlemen, laws must emanate from the Constitution. There are natural laws, Judge. I do not deny there are natural laws, Mr. Ziegler. I only deny that judges are empowered to enforce them. And who will? This, then, was the question. If a right wasn't specifically protected in the Constitution, did that mean it wasn't protected? In the minds of many of the attendees of the Constitutional Convention, obviously not. They would argue that the reason for Magna Carta and the 1689 Bill of Rights was to protect the rights of the people from the rights of the monarch. But in the United States, there was no pre-existing institution to protect the people from. The people had every power that wasn't enumerated for the government. The government didn't have every power that wasn't limited by the Constitution. What did exist were the state governments, and the federal constitution protected the people against the powers of the states. While this argument was made by the majority of the convention, it did not convince everybody. To quote the anti-federalist Patrick Henry at the Virginia Rallying Convention, quote, I observed already that the sense of the European nations, and particularly Great Britain, is against the construction of rights being retained, which are not expressly relinquished. I repeat that all nations have adopted this construction, that all rights not expressly and unequivocally reserved to the people are impliedly and incidentally relinquished to rulers, as necessarily inseparable from the delegated powers. It is so in Great Britain, that every possible right which is not reserved to the people by some express provision or compact is within the king's prerogative. It is so in that country, which is said to be in such full possession of freedom. It is so in Spain, Germany, and other parts of the world. Let us consider the sentiments which have been entertained by the people of America on the subject. At the revolution, it must be admitted, that it was their sense to put down those great rights which ought in all countries to be held inviolable and sacred. Virginia did so, we all remember. She made a compact to reserve expressly certain rights. When fortified with full, adequate and abundant representation, was she satisfied with that representation? No. She most cautiously and guardedly reserved and secured those invaluable, inestimable rights and privileges which no people, inspired with the least glow of the patriotic love of liberty, ever did, or ever can, abandon. She's called upon now to abandon them, and dissolve that compact which secured them to her. She is called upon to accede to another compact which most infallibly supersedes and annihilates her present one. End quote. 
The most significant person to not be convinced by the Federalists and Madison was Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson, serving as ambassador to France, was naturally going to go along with European approaches to liberty. He wrote to Francis Hopkinson on March 13th, 1789, quote, The enlightened parts of Europe have given us the greatest credit for inventing this instrument of security for the rights of the people, and have been not a little surprised to see us give it up so soon. End quote. This argument was taken up by the Anti-Federalists with vigour, as you'll remember from episode 162, Ratification. The Federalists eventually compromised. The ratification of the Constitution was accompanied by many of the states recommending amendments to the Constitution to better protect the rights of the citizens. The clincher was Madison's race for his house seat over the winter of 1788-1789. He pledged to work for a Bill of Rights if elected. Madison was elected, and he was now determined to make it happen. Even Washington was on board. Article 2, Section 3 of the Constitution states, The President shall from time to time give to Congress information of the State of the Union and recommend to their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. And Washington's only political recommendation in his inaugural address was to amend the Constitution to fortify freedom of the citizenry and promote public harmony. Although, as we talked about last time, Madison was heavily involved in the inaugural address, and I think it's safe to assume Madison's hand was here too. Almost 200 suggested amendments were made by the states, many concerned with altering the structure of government, but Madison focused on personal freedoms. He proposed 10 amendments to the Constitution on June 8th, 1789. Nine of these would be placed into Article 1, Section 9, and focused on limiting the power of Congress, with a tenth added into Article 1, Section 10, to limit the power of the states. If Madison were most men, at this point he would have considered his job fulfilled. The Federalist Congress did not want to pass a Bill of Rights. They argued that it was too soon to be changing the Constitution, they hadn't been in office three months and Madison was already proposing changes, and there were bigger problems to deal with. The federal departments needed to be established, and they hadn't yet established ways to collect revenue. Surely that was more important. They knew that Madison hadn't wanted a Bill of Rights, and had pledged to work from one, so they could understand why he was proposing it. That was it. He'd done what he'd promised. Now he could let the matter go. But if he'd done that, he wouldn't be James Madison. Madison knew exactly the arguments the people fighting this would make, because he had once made those same arguments, and because he was James Madison, he knew exactly how to counter them. This was an urgent matter. It would quiet a great division amongst the people, bring North Carolina and Rhode Island into the Union, without doing any harm to the government. It must be remembered, these rights were not controversial. Madison managed to get the amendments through Congress, although not exactly as he intended. The House revised the format, taking out a preamble and removing the amendments from the body of the Constitution and adding them to the end, so that 17 separate amendments went to the Senate, of which 12 passed. These 12 amendments were Article the First. After the enumeration required by the first article of the Constitution, 
there shall be one representative for every 30,000, until the number shall amount to 100, after which the proportion shall be regulated by Congress, so there shall be not less than 100 representatives, nor less than one representative for every 40,000 persons, until the number of representatives shall amount to 200, after which the proportion shall be regulated by Congress, so there shall not be less than 200 representatives, nor more than one representative for every 50,000 persons. Article the Second. No law varying the compensation for the services of the senators and representatives shall take effect until an election of representatives shall have intervened. Article the Third. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Article the Fourth. A well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Article the Fifth. No soldier shall, in time of peace, be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. Article the Sixth. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers and effects against the unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Article the Seventh. No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arriving in the land or naval forces or in the militia, when in actual service in time of war or public danger, nor shall any person be subject for the same offence to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty or property without a due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Article the Eighth. In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law, and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favour, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defence. Article the Ninth. In suits at common law, where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of a trial by jury shall be preserved, and no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise re-examined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of the common law. Article the 10th. Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. Article the 11th. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Article the 12th. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, 
are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. End quote. These 12 articles, having passed Congress, went out to the states for ratification in the autumn of 1789. Over the intervening months, people had started to realise just what Madison had done. Originally, the idea of amending the Constitution with a Bill of Rights was a position taken by anti-federalists. They did not like the Constitution, and they wanted to change it, and saw a Bill of Rights as the most popular way of raising this issue. They could use it as a starting point for a second constitutional convention. Most of the suggested amendments by the states were structural. Madison had sidestepped this, and crafted a Bill of Rights centred around personal liberty. It did no harm to the government. As I've said, these rights were popular. The Federalists had no intention of infringing them, regardless of whether or not they were in the Constitution. Their concern had been about the protection of other rights. This was protected through Madison's 11th Amendment. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. The Federalists ended up supporting the Bill of Rights. It protected the government, was popular, and took away the best criticism of the Constitution the Anti-Federalists had. For the same reason, the Anti-Federalists started to oppose the Bill of Rights, as they would no longer be able to argue for the more radical reforms they wanted. This led to interesting debates with the Federalists, bemused that the Anti-Federalists argued against their own ideas. Of the Twelve Amendments, the first, concerning representation by population, was not ratified, and the second was not ratified until 1992, when it became the 27th Amendment. But the other ten were ratified over the next two years, becoming the Bill of Rights in 1791. From that point, ironically, the Bill of Rights immediately became politically irrelevant. It wouldn't be until the 20th century that they gained judicial significance. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.